Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Jared Janes and Jason Snyder. Jared and Jason are the co-hosts of the Both and Podcast and have a shared interest in metamodernism. We'll be talking about mimetic mediation, the importance of psychological safety in changing minds, this term metamodernism, what it means, the limits of rational systems, Robert Kagan's Five Stages Framework of Human Development, the extreme reactions to the rise of woke culture, the lonely valley of losing your belief system, holding liminal space, contemplative practices, how enlightenment feels like falling, playfulness, and what the praxis of something called Game B might look like. I'm experimenting with minimal editing right now to give the conversations more of a natural feel. Now, there is a theory behind this. It's not just me being a lazy editor. Part of it is to have more casual aesthetic for the show, but the reasoning is that I want myself to get feedback, real feedback. If every recording you hear of yourself is polished, post-produced, clean-edited version of yourself, you might not take time to consciously unlearn all of your filler words and stopgap phrases. So, in this podcast and in the ones preceding, at least for a little while, You'll be hearing more than a few ums and ahs, and I think that's okay. We're going to see how running this little experiment goes. One other tidbit for the show notes here. Um, I'll also be, from now on, including uh, all references to books that are mentioned in our episodes, both in the show notes as well as on a dedicated page on the Agora Politics website, which you can find at www.agorapolitics.com. And now... Without further ado, I give you Jason Snyder and Jared Janes. Jason, Jared... Do the two of you want to introduce yourselves? You can go in either order you'd like. Jared, go for it, man. <laughs> the first, uh, the first to hand it off, huh? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, my name is Jared. I've been in the philosophical slash metamodern online space for quite a while now. I also have a, a deep interest in uh, contemplative practices and uh, spending my time on Twitter. I kind of ran into to Jason, uh, who actually tended to have some of these these common interests. And we you know, started having regular discussions and quickly kind of realized that uh, it was something worth recording. So we, we started a podcast and uh, it's much like your own pretty broad range of topics. But largely, I think one of the main goals is to do what we're calling the mimetic mediation to kind of uh, take insights from sometimes warring tribes, but at least tribes that aren't talking as much and having them kind of interact and, and learn from each other and make connections. So I think that's, that's the introduction that's coming to me at this moment, Jason, you can fill in the gaps now. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, a lot about your introduction, I think also applies to me. You know, I've, I kind of got into Twitter, you know, in kind of the secular contemplative space, but then, you know, had a deep interest in philosophy and kind of bigger picture thinking. And I, had a, I have a background in applied economics and geography, but, you know, really I consider myself a generalist. And 
like Jared, I, I became interested in some some ideas around this term metamodernism, which I guess we'll discuss. Game B, complexity science, systems thinking, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a whole range. And you know, also for myself, I, I kind of in my degree program, you know, I found it uh, a little bit constraining epistemologically, and also in the lack of kind of real interdisciplinary conversation, uh, not just getting different people in a room and speaking past each other, but actually sense making. And so Jared and I, as he said, we just, we, we seem to have a lot in common and we started recording a podcast. And I think we have two, there's two kind of two main premises of the podcast. One is memetic mediation, as Jared mentioned, which is a term coined by Peter Lindbergh mm-hmm. with Connor Barnes, Culture War yeah. 2.0. And it's basically this idea it's it's kind of it's not anything new, but it's really applied to the internet space and what's called like these internet tribes, which is basically kind of filter bubbles or groupings. People have a lot of agreement, but they they tend to see other tribes as part of the problem or something else. And so, magic mediation is really recognizing that nobody, you know, is touching all of the elephant, so to speak, and there needs to be a process of making, you know, sense making of, of understanding different perspectives, taking what's, what's useful from them and building kind of a broader consensus, not necessarily full agreement, but having constructive conversations. And the second premise is really, I think about what your podcast is about of like, what is the future of society? Where are we going? New, you know, new ways to think about politics, new ways to think about economics, new ways to think about personal development. So I guess I'll stop there. Sure. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. That was uh, quite mm-hmm. a lot. One of the metaphors that you just described there that I think you've gone into uh, prior detail a little bit more before was this metaphor of uh, who's touching the elephant. Do you want to just go over what that is real quick? Jared, do you want to do that? I think I think that's, that's your favorite metaphor, right? <laughs> it, 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 it's a top candidate, that's for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's some sort of old parable, and it might have some spiritual beginnings. Uh, but the, the the general idea is that there's a group of blind, I don't know what they're monks or something like that, and uh, there's a, a elephant there, and everybody is uh, at positioned at a different part of the elephant, and they're reporting back. Uh, what they're feeling. So this is their their map of reality, you know. And the the person that's at the trunk is feeling this very uh, distinct, long appendage that's very flexible. And then somebody else is at the the tail, and it's you know this wispy thing that's moving around. And uh, another person's at the foot. You know, so, so basically, you know, reality it being summed up as an elephant uh, is a very multifaceted thing, and uh, everybody has the, a unique perspective. Uh, in this, this, uh, in our experience. And so, uh, rather than disagreeing with each other completely, um, about what we're feeling, uh, we're trying to collaborate to get a better, better big picture of what the, the whole elephant is, as opposed to just the, 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 the spot that we've been, uh, found ourselves in, uh, when it comes to the, to observing, uh, the, the characteristics of that, uh, thing. <laughs> so yeah, the elephant metaphor is a, a good map of a more general idea that I think was largely, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think largely uh, the impetus for the podcast that you guys are doing came out of work that was done by, uh, as you said, uh, Peter Lindbergh and Connor Barnes, who I know you, you two have both had already as guests. Mm-hmm. And they wrote this article back in 2018 called The Medic Tribes of Culture War 2.0. They're part of this, I guess, online collective called the Intellectual Explorers Club. 
that's associated with a lot of these ideas. And the brief, the brief rundown of mimetic tribes of the Culture War 2.0 is basically that part of the reason that our sense-making is breaking down is just that with this abundance of information that we have, you've just got large, larger and increasingly larger groups of people that are operating in these meme plexes that don't seem to be able to talk to one another. They have hardly any kind of shared vocabulary. Would that be a good assessment? Yeah, I think, I think it is. Society is getting more and more complex. And I think digital technology, you know, well, I think the, the utopians in, say, the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, you know, had these kind of utopian ideals about the Internet would bring us all together. And, and really what it's done, well, it, so it's done a couple of things. I mean, and, and a good part of what it's done is that, you know, you're able to kind of find your tribe, right? You're, tra- you're able to find people who share common interests, you know, from all over the world and just geek out with them, right? And so that's a good thing. But the shadow side of that is basically, you know, you, you basically kind of get sucked in to this reality tunnel. Uh, that's a term from Robert Anton Wilson. And, you know, you, you develop kind of your own language, your own shorthand, uh, you know, your own inside jokes. And you do that for a while. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, for many people, they more and more disconnected from the in real life space, the meat space, right? And they're walking around performing the, the actions, but their, their head is in, is in their reality tunnel. Uh, but, you know, they, they also... Um, there's kind of a linguistic drift, right? Um, and you know, and they, they get exposed to other reality tunnels, mimetic tribes, and they don't really understand where they're coming from. And, you know, what they see, you know, triggers them and it causes them to, you know, immediately see it as, um, you know, see, see it as harmful or, you know, problematic, you know, in ways, um, that doesn't really fully take into account um, the context of the other tribe, right? And so yeah. I think, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that we're trying to do on this podcast uh, and that we see as kind of a solution, uh, or at least one, one of many solutions that will be needed to help start uh, solving this problem or at least eating away at it a little bit, is uh, that people actually need to feel safe, right? Psychologically safe, uh, not, mm. not in the sense of... Uh, prevented from hearing ideas, but psychologically secure enough to uh, sit down and have a conversation like, like the one that we're having before this kind of process can even, can even get going. Mm-hmm. Um, I, know, I know the two of you have been very much interested in uh, areas of mindfulness uh, as well as meditation uh, and, I guess, consciousness uh, more generally. And what do you think is the sort of key insight when you sort of seal behind the veil from having these kinds of mindful practices that that you get in terms of understanding the limits of rationality and the space that you need to be in to have fruitful conversation. Hmm. Jared? Yeah, I, I mean, <clears throat> the, the, the spiritual or contemplative project uh, really is diving deep into the, the subjective uh, experience um, and trying to understand it in a, a bit of a deeper way. Uh, and as we do that, uh, we kind of get, uh, get some, some perspective and some experience and some direct contact with, uh, the, the kind of, um, 
uh, I like the the phrase the the confabulated nature of our views. Uh, mm-hmm. So we see that they're kind of dependent on certain circumstances that aren't applied, you know, that aren't that don't uh, belong to everybody. Um, and it starts to to show you and kind of hint at so that you can not only conceptually understand this elephant metaphor, um, but also like see yourself uh, making assumptions, uh, getting overly attached to certain ideas or concepts, um, being triggered by certain words. And, and the, the more you're able to kind of distance yourself from a lot of the ideologies and, and perspectives that we happen to find ourselves into, uh, the more it creates a container that is just kind of over you're less emotionally reactive and you're able to have more broader conversations. Um, and so I really like that you teed it up to saying psychological safety is really important. Um, and, and I think, uh, without doing a lot of work and, and understanding our own, uh, emotional, uh, um, um, uh, tendencies and, uh, and, you know, baggage and, and yeah. issues, uh, it, it, it's, it's hard to hold the safe space. Um, and especially if somebody's coming in from uh, a tribe that might have something, hold some, some view that's in direct conflict with your own. Um, and so, so yeah, these, these practices definitely help create a little bit of a distance and, and, uh, uh bring some safety to those conversations at least. Um, yeah. 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 So I, I was particularly concerned, um, I think starting back in around uh, fall or maybe summer of 2016, I became really, really concerned with the prospect of, at least in the American context, of political violence. Uh, Mm. It seemed to me like things were getting more and more chaotic, that they weren't going to slow down, uh, and Mm. that these tribes that we were splitting into uh, were increasingly not only not talking to each other, not able to make any kind of communication, but actually having outright, you know, disdain for one another. Uh, in a way that seemed mm-hmm. extremely dangerous to me. Uh, and Ooh. when I was looking into this, I, I became concerned with, uh, you know, all kinds of areas related to propaganda, disinformation. And that led me slowly and slowly back into needing to figure out, OK, well, what's going on inside of actual human minds, right, that's mm-hmm. causing them to uh, create these belief structures and then hold to them to the point where they're willing to dehumanize and maybe even uh, potentially attack others uh, simply for their different beliefs. Uh, One of the books that really helped me get a grasp on sort of the limits of rationality, which is a a big theme of this conversation, was Mm -hmm. the the book um, Godel Escherbach. Are you too familiar with that at all? Uh, I've I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. I'm in the same boat, and I've heard it referenced many times too, so I kind of have a a general idea of some of the concepts there. Yeah, yeah. So um, Gödel Escherbach is basically looking at uh, kind of uh, how do you how is it that you construct a formal logical system, right? And there are certain patterns that appear. Obviously, uh, you see them in music, but also uh, in mathematics and computation that uh, just tell us straight up that we uh, we don't actually have any way of building a, a wholly complete logical understanding of the world, and that. Everyone is walking around necessarily with these sort of gaps in their worldview, these contradictions that they're not really um, forced to confront and and so forth, leading back to obviously the, the, I guess, the most well-known reference to the wider audience uh, would just be some sort of vague uh, reinterpretation of Gödel's uh, incompleteness theorem, right, Mm -hmm. Um, which says that, you know, any uh, axiomatic formal system 
uh, will necessarily not be able to include all of the sort of rules to recreate itself or to represent itself mm-hmm. fully. And this ties back mm-hmm. into something the two of you mentioned uh, in your introduction and, and is sort of, again, just leaves clues all over the podcast, which is why I love the, the work that you two are doing, uh, which is that the map is truly not the territory. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you want to yeah. go into a little bit this term metamodernism, what it means and how it relates to these conversations that we're trying to have? Uh, I could take a, a crack yeah. at that. So sure. um, I should I should state out, outright that that term is used in different ways uh, and, and, and the in two main ways that, that I'll, I'll describe. And uh, there's some disagreements about how it should be used. Um, in one sense, it's used more as kind of like a, describing a cultural sensibility after the postmodern sensibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also another way it's used um, uh, that I call more developmental metamodernism which is similar, has a lot of similarities to Integral, like Ken Wilber's Integral, if, if anybody's familiar with that. But it, it basically um, is based on, I would say, uh, uh, developmental psychology uh, and theories about developmental psychology. Um, and, you know, so, so for example, Robert Kagan and his five-stage model of human development, um, the model of hierarchical, hierarchical complexity, um, uh, which basically kind of, you know, it's kind of like a post Piaget, you know, Piaget studied the, you know, the psychological development of, of children. Yeah. Play and so um, forth. And right, right. Um, and this proposed, you know, well, you know, adults can also go through, uh, uh, stages of development. Um, and so developmental metamodernism, uh, um, you know, from my opinion, kind of the, 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 the core books, although it's not, you know, it's part of a larger ecosystem, uh, is by this character, this fictional character, Hansi Freinacht. Um, there's actually two authors who wrote it, and they wrote uh, this book, The Listening Society and Nordic Ideology. Uh, and they, they basically outline, in The Listening Society, they, they kind of outline a, a new vision uh, for society that, that's based on a, a robust understanding of developmental psychology, also contemplative practice, um, and in the uh, Nordic ideology, they, they apply that to kind of a new vision of politics um, mm-hmm. and and you know different kinds of politics that that kind of need to be need to be counterbalanced. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, metamodernism is a whole it's it's kind of a whole world. Um, <laughs> and and so yeah. we can kind of go down you know and, you know many of the different strands. If you, if you would like. Well, I guess my question for you would just be, is that a term that the two of you would apply to the work that you're doing yourselves? Hmm. Well, I, so I'm, you know, I, I consider myself, you know, if, if I'm going to take on any kind of, you know, you know meta theory label, okay. you know, I, I would, I would call myself, you know, developmental metamodernist. Um, and so, you know, and, and, the, and the nice thing about about it is it's, it's, it's kind of a very broad set of ideas that, you know, that, that leaves a lot of the specificity or, or it leaves a lot of things unspecified, but it provides a framework for them to be developed. So for example, uh, you know, our, you know, this notion of mimetic mediation, you know, that's not something that we got from kind of the really directly from the men of honor world, but, um, you know, it, it seems complementary to it. Uh, same with like the game B discussion. And actually it's, it's funny, it's interesting. Um, 
so Jim Rutt of Jim Rutt Podcast, and he's one of the founders of Game B, he recently interviewed the character of Hansi Freinacht, and they had kind of had a meeting of the minds. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was some kind of disagreement, but, but, but you know, and, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, there's a lot of room, um, while it's, you know, for me, it's, 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 it really helped kind of clarify, in a meta sense, kind of my thinking about a whole range of issues and tying them together, but it leaves a lot of room open to, you know, to, you know, to explore, uh, you know, I guess, I guess many other intellectual currents, right? And so, like, I'm really fascinated, for example, with an activism, with, you know, complexity science, you know, a whole host of things. And, and there's room, you know, in my, my mind, in kind of the, a larger metamodern framework for all of it. Mm-hmm. That was an excellent explanation. Thank you. Yeah. And I might add a, a, a couple quick things in there as well. Um, one of the, you know, the, as, as Jason said, there's a lot of different camps that are using different language. Um, and uh, I've probably spent more time in the integral world than the uh, Hansi school of developmental metamodernism. Um, but there is a lot of similarities. And there's a few kind of memes that I do enjoy uh, out of the integral scene that I think do largely describe what practicing metamodernism is or, or modernism, metamodernism being enacted looks like. Uh, and one of the core uh, sensibilities that I think is there that is very important to me is this idea of transcending and including. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as we go through these developmental phases uh, from maybe, you know, a modernist to a postmodernist, uh, we, we see each step into this next space as the kind of the critique or the uh, or, or the the refute or or, or, uh, or some sort of synthesis of the others that but it's it's mm-hmm. correct and before we had it wrong uh, the metamodern turn is basically saying you know that we always had something right in each one of these phases even if it was the the the, the early childhood developmental phases um, but really it's context context dependent in situations uh, to to kind of understand what uh, what perspective needs to be booted up and what's most useful. Um, so, so yeah, it, it, that, that leaves tons of room to explore in like, if you take the, the, um, um, this seriously, then there's really nothing that you can do that isn't metamodern in some sense. Um, yeah. So I find, I actually find, um, Kagan's framework, five stage framework, um, kind of really helpful. It's been really helpful for me thinking about it because it also relates to the sense of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, Kagan is not used so much in the Hanzi stuff. They use more of the, the model of hierarch- hierarchical complexity. Um, but, you know, like David Chapman, uh, he, he talks about this idea of meta-rationality, and, and he his views are, you know, largely based on the work of Kagan. Uh, and basically, you know, and I'll just quickly describe, you know, uh, the last couple of stages. You know, so he, he describes sure. stage stage four, uh, um as you know, finding yourself a logical system that where you can kind of manage, you know, that, you know that you believe in that you think is is fairly complete, and you know it helps you kind of mediate your activity in the world, mediate your relationships. Stage three is more of just like it's, it's more it's more you know purely relationally based. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's not so much based kind of a, a larger ideological system, but what people find in stage in stage four, and this goes back to the the incompleteness theorem that, that you reference, is that you know, no logical system uh, or ideological system is complete. And so um, you might get to this point where you start seeing kind of cracks in the system, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, 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 and there's this kind of valley between stage four and stage five 
where, you know, it can be this valley of nihilism where mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, everything you thought was true crumbles, you know, maybe you grew up in a certain religious faith and then you, you lose your faith or you grow up, you know, and your parents were, were diehard, whatever, right? Libertarians, yeah. communists, whatever, <laughs> right? And, and all of a sudden you get new information. You're like, oh man, like so much of what I thought wasn't true. Maybe nothing's true. Maybe, you know, everything's relative. It's very relativistic. And there's this kind of like denialistic phase uh, or a deconstructive phase, right? And, mm-hmm. and, you know, if we wanted to be loose with it, we can maybe map this to uh, in a cultural, kind of a cultural code to postmodernism, to kind of this, this deconstructive mood, uh, move, which, you know, from, from the point of view of developmental theory, as Jared mentioned, is actually a necessary move. You have to deconstruct, um, you know, a, a kind of a system that, that's, that's outlived its purpose or it's no longer contextually relevant, uh, you have to deconstruct it before you can reconstruct something better, you know, with the understanding that, you know, every, every logical system is, is, is a complete, you know, there, there is kind of some degree of relativity. The stage five uh, is more of what he calls like this fluid mode or um, where it's more of a pragmatic stage where you're able to kind of appreciate different frameworks, um, different ideological systems, you know, in their appropriate context, uh, but you're not, you're, you're not kind of behold, you know, you're, you're not beholden to any of them. Right. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's, it's more kind of fluid and what David Chapman calls this meta-rational kind of, um, uh, place. And, and I think metamodernism is, 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 it has a lot of, you know, resonances with, with that kind of move. Yeah. I see, I see metamodernism as this almost, uh, patchwork of of belief systems right that you get kind of installed in your mind you know um we don't need to go too far into postmodernism. i know it gets uh sort of straw manned quite a lot but i'd mm-hmm. say the fundamental point of postmodernism, or the fundamental critique that they make is just this idea that you know everything is a narrative none of these narratives can be totally true therefore mm-hmm. you know dot 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 uh mm-hmm. a, a lot of people would come to the conclusion that you know nothing is true or uh, all mm-hmm. belief systems are, you know, worthless or something like that. And th- this is, of course, mm-hmm. as you said, a common response to anyone who's had uh, their belief system shattered, whether that's through uh, whether that's a religious belief system or a political ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and I myself, I'm, I'm so glad uh, we got into this uh, because I myself went through this process as well. Uh, right mm-hmm. around this time that I was getting concerned about the, uh, the prospects of political violence, I went through a really, really dark mm-hmm. and lonely transitional phase. Um, for a number of health reasons, I had actually left university for a period. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm back now finishing up my degree at the moment. I'll be done in the spring. Uh, but during this transitional period, I, uh, I was questioning a lot of my assumptions. I was questioning a lot of what I thought I knew about the world, what I thought I knew about uh, politics. And uh, I, I definitely certainly flirted uh, with a, I would say, reactionary response in terms of adopting almost extremist uh, ideologies of one sort or another, whether that was the far mm-hmm. left or the far right, or even aspects of libertarianism, mm-hmm. um, I've I've kept the uh, the political ideology of this podcast itself as ex- uh, purposefully ambiguous in that we don't actually mm-hmm. claim we claim to be a political theory podcast, but we're not uh, married to any one core ideological grouping or tenet. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. the name Agora Politics is suggestive of uh, agorism, which is uh, a more libertarian style of 
interaction, but we're not actually even explicitly agorists. Uh, really, mm-hmm. we're just drawing from that Greek term to talk about the voluntary exchange of ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'd like, yes. I'd like to think that I've reached the stage of development now that's a little bit more fluid, a little bit more mature, uh, corresponding to that stage five there. But uh, it's something that, you know, when I when I lost my initial belief systems and I didn't really think I necessarily had very strong belief systems before, uh, mm-hmm. I was in a super, super lonely place for a really long time. Yeah. And either of you had a similar experience? Um, I would say a number of times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I just want to I just want to know um, just just this kind of a side note that, you know, when you talk about, you know, you flirting with kind of the, the neo reaction. I, 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 you know, I, I, in terms of like what what I f- fear, you know. So I fear, for example, movements that, you know, have neo fascist tendencies. Um, right. And I'm not just talking, about, you know, and I'm not talking about Trump or you know the rise of you know kind of these movements in you know in kind of different different countries, but actually on online, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think part of what this has to do with. I mean, one is this is, this is, you know, this kind of like this Internet reaction chamber where, you know, you have, you have the rise of the hyper woke. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, from my point of view, it starts to I eat was, itself alive. I was definitely right? reacting to that for a long time. Right. And a lot of people are right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and again, like, I don't want to, you know, like, I, I think that there's a lot of, you know, I just want to state for the record that I think that there is, you know, a lot of value coming out of that movement, you know, in terms of like thinking about structural uh, inequality and, uh, you know, intersectionality. I think that there's a lot of value there, but, um, I think, you know, with the rise of, of cancel culture and, you know, um, you kind of, you know, a hierarchy of, you know, of, you know, the most, whatever, along whatever dimensions, you know, oppressed person has the biggest voice at the table. And, you know, it, it, it starts to be, in my point of view, you know, kind of, um, What's the word? It, it kind of becomes it starts to become kind of toxic, mm-hmm. um, and maybe you know I'm a straight white male, so maybe that's you know just my toxicity. But um, you know I'm gonna, I'm gonna own it. Yeah, it's anyway, certainly. Uh, it, oh, I, go ahead. And I and I and I'll just just wrap this up. I think that there a lot of the neo reaction is responding to that, but I but I think you know it, this response is kind of in this this kind of in between four and five valley um, of responding to what they perceive as this kind of um, you know, kind of postmodern, you know, relativistic, um, culture that, 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 you know, is perceived to, uh, that, you know, kind of woke culture is kind of rising out of, and, and they're responding with, you know, in kind of a very extreme way. And I think that's also, that that's also not the correct response, right? This kind of neo-reactionary response. And, you know, frankly, in many quarters, neo, you know, neo-fascist response. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to find a way to kind of like walk walk this thin line, you know, this tightrope, to to a, you know, a more constructive, uh, meta rational, meta modern uh, stance. What? You, yeah. Uh, yeah. Jared, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I was just going to add to you know. So as we're describing this this path, um, well, and first off, I'd say uh, to to your uh, question, have we have I experienced similar uh, things? 
just like Jason, yes, many times in many different areas of my life. <laughs> um, it does seem to be, and, and actually, I mean, I didn't even discover the metamodern meme until, uh, I had already kind of gone through this a couple times in different, uh, different aspects. And, and, um, you know, the reason it resonated so much was just because it was like, oh my gosh, that explains my experience to a T. Like, there yeah. must be something fundamental here. Um, that being said, uh, I do think, uh, so, so like you said, one of the ways of, of, of viewing this, uh, what, what a metamodern, what metamodern action might look like, it might look like a patchwork of, of ideologies, uh, or, or not ideologies, but just systems or whatever, uh, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, sure. Um, but I, you know, the, 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 the strange thing that we're saying here too, is that if, if no system is complete, then even this metamodern frame is just yet another one, uh, yet another, uh, system to, to, uh, to believe in. Um, and so I actually think the way it feels when you're in that fluid mode is a lot like being the spaces in between the systems. Oh, um, I, love, and, I love this. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that also speaks a little bit to this mimetic mediation space, too, where Jason and I are really trying to look at the relational element of the systems and try and, you know, create a little bit more blurring of boundaries and, uh, and, you know, and that, that, that there's a bunch of different techniques that can go there. Um, but, but yeah, so it, it kind of, a, a large amount of it is being in this liminal in between space, um, while not being afraid of also being in the, the systems from time to time as well for practical purposes. Yeah, so this language of liminal space, uh, I first heard it uh, when I was looking through the work of uh, Jordan Hall, Jordan Greenhall. Uh, mm -hmm. I know you've done an interview with him as well. He, I think, is associated with this Game B concept and this general uh, intellectual explorers club. Um, I know he works, does work in complexity science uh, over at the Santa Fe Institute, or at least he's been educated there. And as a p fellow political theorist... When I found his work, it really resonated with me in terms of, oh, this is someone who's pushing out new ideas, new terms, and new concepts, who's trying to make sense of the, the state that, that, we're, that we're in at the moment. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I think is a, a crucial insight here uh, that you talked about in terms of just creating space, uh, when I was doing through my own, uh, going through my own kind of uh, psycho, psychological and... Uh, sociological and political journey on this. Uh, I obviously got really interested in consciousness as well. I was trying to figure out again how our minds are working here. I uh, had some experiences with psychedelics and one of the things that you, one of the key insights that you sort of take away uh, when you do this for the first time uh, and when you revisit it later is that really everything that we're seeing is necessarily a, a constrained uh, construction of the mind, right? And that we can't mm -hmm. actually uh, process. We don't have the computation power to really process everything that we could perceive if we were perceiving everything. And so we necessarily have to simplify the world. Uh, mm. And uh, this, this I think, does, does create a problem for sense making. I think it creates a problem in that you're always going to have blind spots. Uh, what do you two think are some of the answers to recognizing those blind spots and, you know, trying to sort of get past your own cognitive limitations? Hmm. Well, I mean, so what, you know, I think what we've been talking about of, of recognizing that you do have a mental model of the world, um, you, you don't see reality with a capital R, um, uh, you know, your, your mental model might, might have some correspondence to reality, 
um, you know, or else we wouldn't be able to function day to day. Uh, mm-hmm. But once we kind of realize that, that we all have our own mental models, um, I actually, I was, I'm teaching a, a class and uh, right now, and I was going over um, uh, Danelle Meadows' work, and, and, and she, she has this phrase, something like, you know, collecting mental models. Um, and, you know, basically what that means is, you know, in order to collect mental models is you have to engage with people. I mean, I don't think there's any, you know, having conversations like we're having now, I don't think there's any other way around it. Um, and exploring other people's perspectives and, and, you know, uh, for the time being, you know, loosening the, your kind of reactive grip on your perspective, um, and, trying to trying to see reality through somebody else's uh, eyes through what they're telling you and the questions you're, you're asking them. Uh, and this, this is really hard. This is extremely hard because, uh, you know, our, our mental models are, are deeply tied to our sense of identity, mm-hmm. right? Our sense of self. And, you know, and this is why, you know, I've, I've argued in the past, you know, going back to mimetic mediation is that uh, uh, mimetic mediation is also a contemplative practice. Um, you know, as we mediate the memes in the world, we also mediate the memes in our own mind. Um, and, uh, you know, the ability to, um, you know, to explore other perspectives without shutting down ourselves or without getting reactive to them uh, is extremely difficult, but it's something that, that can be practiced uh, and, and cultivated. Yeah, so uh, I guess... Uh Jason, or I'm sorry, Jared, <laughs> did you have anything to add to that? Um, yeah, I, I guess one thing I would 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 kind of add in there um, is that to do this this work require you know a, a lot of the work is using more and more uh, complex models uh, of of systems and meta systems and understanding inter- interactions and and this this intellectual exercise of constantly uh, you know exploring contradictions pulling things apart putting them back together uh, is is a, a huge component of uh, of this 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 um, of bringing some of this fluidity into our experience uh, but to Jason's point um, when there is an ego in that that equation uh, that that can't help but in many situations identify with certain parts of our experience, uh, this starts to point to the, the fact that uh, some of the real deeper uh, uh, insights and outcomes from the, the contemplative uh, path and 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 work and and practice uh, is really important, specifically in understanding and exploring and deconstructing the raw sense of self, uh, even, you know, cause we can, in, and there are times, uh, with, in this, in this path where you can start to break down that subject object dualism, uh, and it allows you to be a lot less reactive and to be able to quickly pick up things, put them down because they don't belong to you. Um, mm-hmm. and so it is kind of like the, the self is kind of the, the card that n- knocks the whole, uh, the whole house of cards over. Uh, if, if you if you knock that out, everything else becomes a little bit less real than it was before. Um, so yeah, it, it's important, and you know, not only that, but you know, it's it's a it, it can make life that much more enjoyable for for you and the people around you, and um, and uh, and yeah, things can get uh, quite interesting, and and uh, the, it does bring a, a a kind of baseline 
level of, of for the lack of a better word, uh, sacredness to our moment-to-moment experience as well, which which requires us to be that much more available, that much more awake, and that much more open to our experience and all of the the information that's coming in, uh, and that that really does, uh, in my mind, lead to so much of the skillful behavior. So so yeah, if I know we're not there's still this this relative ultimate distinction, and we could maybe fall into the deep weeds, but that might be a whole hour, two hour conversation in itself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So if I put myself uh, in the psychologist chair, you know, obviously one of the things, not obviously, but one of the things that I was doing uh, at this time was I was uh, engaged in a a practice of psychotherapy at the time. And uh, in terms of the the dialectic process, this uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and then rupture again, uh, I think that part of what we're talking about in terms of creating this space uh, for, for change, uh, creating this openness is, is actually just the, the living experience of, uh, of iterating through that, that loop over and over again with, uh, with different ideas and different identities. And, you know, one of the mm-hmm. hardest parts about this idea of like, oh, well, if, if we could just get the self out of the way, the self is the one who is uh, holding on to all of these things that are not theirs, you know, <laughs> Um, I, I, I love that turn of phrase there, put them down. They're not yours. Uh, yeah. is, is that when you are losing your sense of self, whether it's in a psychological context, whether it's on, um, heavy doses of psychoactive drugs or anything else, uh, it really does feel like dying and it, it takes mm. quite a lot of effort to, to reconstruct a, a coherent identity, a coherent, um, anchor that, mm-hmm. uh, makes you feel grounded afterwards. It can take quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing, I mean, so I think Jared and I have had a lot of these kinds of conversations, you know, so there is a danger in, in this kind of contemplative practice of depersonalization. Um, and I, you know, I, I think, you know, while, you know, I, for me, I, I, instead of saying kind of getting rid of the self, uh, for me, it's more about, you know, make, you know, seeing the self. I mean, in, in one sense, you kind of see through the construct of the self, uh, but that's just one lens, you know, um, you know, we're collecting, uh, mental models, lenses, right. Um, and another one is to see the self as a verb, you know, as this constant, constantly changing phenomenon. Um, you know, another, another way to see it, um, uh, is, uh, well, let's see what else, Jared, help me out here. <laughs> My mind's going, yeah. Yeah, well, here's the here's the weird here's the really weird thing, right? So so mm-hmm. um, so I, I'm really uh, fascinated with Buddhist tantra lately, and they have a lot of these like very provocative stories of um, yogis who are not monastics, so these are people that are in the monastery. They're people out living life. Some of them are businessmen. Some of them are uh, wives. You know, they're just kind of all, all sorts of people. <clears throat> Um, and there's like a specific group of them that, they, that a, a lot of the um, uh, uh, Vajrayana, specifically Buddhist uh, uh, lineages talk about. They call them Mahasiddhas. And the interesting thing is that they're, they're supposedly these extremely awake people where they've, they've basically, you know, they've died before death in the sense that they're, they no longer have any sense of identification uh, on a moment-to-moment experience. So there's, there is no, you know, no separation of, of self-other. Um, and the weird thing that happens here is what that does is it it releases that ownership of all of those concepts and ideas and stories about who and what 
you are and what they what your preferences are and you know all these things that we stitch together as a coherent personality and start to believe in some abstract way uh, and so the really weird thing is that these people when they when they lose all of these boundaries self-imposed boundaries uh, that they've constructed themselves um, they become extremely interesting and fascinating and very unique. Uh, so it's, it's almost like the bounds of, of, of potential responses, uh, in, in every moment is, is, is limitless. Um, but the way it looks like is they're like one of the most, you know, unique individuals ever. Uh, so it, it really has, yeah, very charismatic and just mm. very engaged and can do, you know, in one hand, you know, they're, they're great at something. And then the next minute they're, they're refuting it and they're just kind of confused. You know, it's, it's just, it gives them a ultimate flexibility of fluidity because they're not, uh, uh, contained by any of their concepts of who they are. Um, and to, to just put one more little thing in here, cause you said, uh, reinstantiating a ground after we've kind of deconstructed some of these, uh, concepts of identification and self other boundaries. Um, the weird thing is that a lot of the ways that the, the ground is described post ego death, uh, is actually a groundless ground. Uh, so that they'll even talk oh. about them using the metaphor of, you know, enlightenment feels like falling, uh, backwards, uh, you know, but the, 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 the rub is that there's no ground. You just keep falling. Um, mm-hmm. so, so getting comfortable with this, this radical, groundlessness becomes your new ground. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it, it can be a really hard process to get through that. And there's many deconstructions of, of ego that happens and cycles over, over, over again, and everybody it's different. So it's, you know, it's, it's a huge, huge topic. Um, but yeah. the personality maintains itself and there is a lot of unique, interesting, uh, completely personal things that you would see from somebody who even, so they're not just, you know, uh, drooling in a, the, in a cave, uh, <laughs> blissed out in the, the, the infinite universe or something. <laughs> yeah. And there's a, there's a couple uh, points out. I mean, one, you know, for me, I'm just being, speaking personally, the ground becomes a lot more imminent. It, it becomes, you know, you know, like I, if I start feeling kind of like I'm falling and it feels scary, like, you know, uh, you know, just, just, you know, the presence of, you know, the table, you know, of, of the leaves on the tree, right? Like there, there's just kind of, you know, whatever's arising in the moment in your experience, you know, is, it, you know, like there, there's no denying that, that something, you know, it seems to be arising. And, um, <laughs> and for me, you know, this kind of just the sensory quality, um, the uh, for me, just kind of, yeah, you know, the kind of like the, the be here nowness, you know, like Ram Das talks about, right. Mm-hmm. Of, of just like, you know, I, I might not be anybody in particular, but there's still a body mind system here um, that's that I'm observing. So this, this is also feeding into the idea of metacognition. Right. But it's yeah. also, you know, in a sense, it's embodied. There's this embodied cognition where, um, you know, I'm able to fluidly, flexibly respond to my environment uh, in, a, in, a, in a kind of intuitively robust way where I can, I can learn to trust my intuition and I can playfully take on different identities. And this is going back to the Kagan stage five as they're contextually appropriate. It becomes actually a very pragmatic, um, you know, kind of, kind of place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I, what should be emphasized, you know, cause when people talk about like ego death, 
I think, and you know, justifiably, uh, you know, people have a lot of ideas that that you just become this kind of walking zombie or something, and that's not the case at all. Um, no. You know, everything becomes more vivid. Uh, it becomes, uh, you know, more enchanted. Feels more enchanted. It feels more beautiful, and you all appreciate other people more. And you and you all don't see as much separation between you and the other person, right? Like it's all if it's all if if there's no if there's you know attenuated sense of self, then you know everybody else is also in a sense part of it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, in another sense, your self expands. You know, it it expands to take on you can say all of humanity, right? And you know, you know my my own interests are still there and I can observe them. I can still observe my ego arising in real time and, and my preferences arising in real time. Um, but you know, in relation to other people, um, you know, I, I also identify with, you know, the needs and the sensibilities of other people as well. And that for me that, you know, that's just, you know, an aid in this kind of sense making process itself. Excellent. And I, I really like, uh, this, uh, <clears throat> reference to playfulness that you you talked about because individuals yeah. who maybe have gotten to this place or might be temporarily in this place because of some experience that they've recently had or, or something along those lines or a long uh, contemplative practice they really do come off as uh, almost light right almost uh, mm-hmm. fey like in terms of the way in which when you're interacting with them they're able to sort of catch things and shoot them back to you but they don't seem uh, overly attached and, mm-hmm. and and really just I, I can't find any other words for it to, to say other than they really just come off as in the moment uh, in a very yeah. profound way. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, that's, it's in the moment, but it's not it's not it's not stupid. Right. It's, yeah. It's, it's intelligently. There's a, a high level of intuitive and rational. So there's a metacognitive and a kind of embodied, you know, uh, embodied in embodied cognitive elements, you know, working in, in you know, uh, you know, interacting well. Yeah, 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 and and, and I mean, if you, even if you're just thinking about it at this moment, um, any time that we are deeply investing all of our um, conscious uh, attention uh, into some sort of concept, some idea, uh, we're working in memory. You know, we're we're just in the past, um, and so to be in the present uh, is this. It, it is. It's it's like you said. It's light. It's vast. It contains all of the 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 systems and concepts and everything that are arising in that moment. Um, and so, so yeah, it, it feels the, the, the more the self dissolves, the, the lighter you feel as well. Uh, I know that the Shenzhen Yang, a, uh, meditation teacher used to say, it feels like you're light as a feather. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And I find myself carrying this tension, uh, even as a host of the podcast. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm trying to have a, uh, an interesting conversation with the two of you and stay as in the moment uh, as I can. But I've also got a goal, right, in terms of what I'm trying mm-hmm. to produce here, the product that we want to have, uh, mm-hmm. the questions that I'd like to ask. And so I'm constantly, uh, we're getting real meta now, <laughs> but I'm constantly mm-hmm. uh, rebalancing sort of what my agenda is with, with letting the conversation unfold in the most lively way possible in real time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jared, Jared and I have had a lot of conversations about this. Yeah. in terms of how we approach the podcast and you know sometimes we go in with 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 a, a more strict agenda um but we often find that you know we've talked about this that that when we kind of go in 
almost without any preparation, right? And it's kind of convenient, right? Um, just because yeah. we're both busy people otherwise. But and just to in this liminal space to see what arises, you know, some of our best conversations come from that place. Um, and you know, again, again, that doesn't, you know, and I, I understand the tension of like trying to see kind of the larger, uh, you know, where, where is this going? Um, you know, like what are the larger implications here? And and that's you know, and that's arising, right? But um, to not, you know, hold on to them too tightly, right? To not be too attached to them. Um, and what I found, especially when things, you know, for me, my, you know, meditation is a very, you know, I, I emphasize embodiment a lot. And and one of the perks of that is that when I'm like have ideas that arise that maybe aren't contextually appropriate or, or um, they would kind of take us out of the flow of the conversation, you know, I try to embody it, which basically just means feel it in my body, feel the, the, the kind of texture and sensations of the point I was trying to make in my body, you know, kind of let it process. Um, and I find that, you know, it, it often comes back again, you know, naturally in the flow of the conversation. Uh, and maybe it's even, it's even better. It's, it's, it, you know, it's, yeah, the idea is better formulated. Um, but you know, it was a lot of, it was mostly subconscious processing that was doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah. Go ahead. And, and I would just say in to Jason's point, you know, the, the, the preparation component, and it's also kind of dependent on to, as we were speaking about before, like if there's a common language there, uh, if we know that somebody's going to come on that we, you know, we, we share same, same memes and in vocabulary and jargon, uh, you know, it, it does, it, it, there was prep. It was just, it's embodied. It's, it's something that's already yeah. available. Um, and so it's a bringing extra structure to something can sometimes make it a little bit, uh, can constrict or kind of suffocate the conversation. Yeah. And we are hoping through these conversations for, uh, something emergent, uh, maybe even something transcendent to mm-hmm. arise out of the, the, really the, the natural flow of dialogue and the power of the, uh, I don't want to get too Gnostic here, but the, the logos that comes out uh, through human conversation. Um, and yeah. I, I do want to steer this because we've gone quite a bit into the weeds on a lot of these <laughs> deep spiritual and psychological concepts. Uh, sure, and sure. I do, I do want to steer it more towards the practical. Sure. Uh, and uh, one of the things that we've been referencing throughout the, the podcast, and obviously uh, listeners can go look up these uh these articles and videos where this is talked about a lot on their own after this is uh, this concept of game B. And uh, Jason, I know recently you had been tweeting uh, actually uh, about the, uh, this idea of game B values. What, what would you guys say are the main core tenets of trying to sort of, I guess, embody uh, a, a game B approach to sense making? Hmm. Because it's it's different than the sort of hierarchical, yeah. top-down yeah. I- information that you get basically all through school and life. Yeah, um, I guess I could try and take a crack at this. Uh, so I don't, I don't particularly want to speak for Game B uh, okay. uh, because you know Jordan Hall, Jim Rutt, Daniel Schmachtenberger will describe it much, much, much better than than I could. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, but you know. I think for me, how, how how I kind of take the ideas in my life. Uh, I mean, so one, you know, getting kind of really practical is I've 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 become 
really interested in, in this notion of, of, of bioregional regeneration um, and, uh, you know, creating smaller, uh, resilient communities uh, in real space. So here in, you know, now we're in Boone, North Carolina, we're associated with App State, um, you know, and I'm, I'm currently, you know, trying to connect with as many people I can, you know, around local food, you know, permaculture, regenerative agriculture, uh, you know, people who have kind of a systems thinking approach. Um, and in terms of values, I, I think, you know, I think Jim Rutledge is out pretty well in his recent article, A Journey to Game B, where, you know, we there's a lot of, you could say, traditional values. And, and traditionally, you can go all the way back to, you know, hunter-gatherers and, and kind of like smaller number, number level tribes, which is Number, yeah. number is like 100, you know, it's basically the number where beyond that tribe, um, you know, how, how cohesive can a certain tribe be, uh, you know, but also traditional values in, in terms of like traditionally religious values of like, you know, recognizing the value of conviviality, of, you know, meeting together in, in real space and, you know, generating a sense of community community and, and, and meaning in people's lives and connecting that back to the land again, right? And connecting that back to, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, connecting the social systems back to the ecological systems. And we've had conversations with people, you know, on like the, the like the nature of la- of work, nature of labor, and you know, and questioning, you know, why are we, you know, why are are we working so much, right? Um, you know, why are we, you know, like w- what are we trying to buy, right? Like like what do we actually need, you know, to <laughs> It's sufficient to be happy, and and what is sustainable, right? When we're getting to this yeah. idea, you know, to logical sustainability, uh, and getting back to these a lot of older values of, you know, you know, well, maybe we don't need so much material stuff to be happy, you know, we can we can rediscover, you know, community, uh, you know, kind of community functions, community events, community gardens, you know, like all of these things that bring people together that that we've kind of lost, I'd say, maybe since you know, World War II or something in the United States, right? Um, and, you know, but, but, but it's, also, it's also not the same as before. Uh, one yeah. difference, you know, clearly is the internet. Uh, and, you know, so creating these kind of, kind of like recreating these smaller communities based around kind of these, you know, this notion of the commons, not, you know, non-rivalrous principles, you know, those are, you know, th- those are strong in game B. Um, um, but that's also hyper-connected, right? So, in, in, you know, this getting into, like, I think you're probably familiar with, like, Joe Brewer and some, um, Taleb's ideas with, like, fractal localism. Yeah. Um, and so, it, it, but it's it, but it's, it's a very connected uh, localism where, you know, like, I'm constantly, you know, constantly interacting with video from people all over the, all over, you know, all over the place, you know, outside, and, and, and exchanging ideas, exchanging, you know, ideas, exchanging best practices, Um you know, exchanging resources and so learning from each other, um, but also instantiating it, you know, in these kind of more local contexts. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, very, very much agree pretty much with everything Jason said. Um, as, as when you first asked what parts of, of game B and, and Jason's point too, I also don't feel like I'm, I'm, a uh, can speak for it completely, even That's though I do fine. love we the don't community. Need a def- yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you can give your interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I th- the, the thing that is most attractive about it to me 
um, is so, so game B is obviously in opposition or in uh, um, uh, response to a game A environment that we've been living in. Um, and I think that one of the core elements of the game A infrastructure, so how things are currently running, operating system of, of society these days, yeah. uh, is is largely based on this idea that we can come you know, to, to bring it back to the same conversation we've been having this whole time, that we could come to a perfect system, that we could arrive at a system that that is going to work well for everybody. And you know, we may, sometimes we might have to make some minor adjustments or something like that. But, but this idea of arriving somewhere, somewhere. Um, and I think game B comes from a place of deep humility in the sense that we know there's nowhere to arrive. Um, and so it becomes a process orientation as well. And this kind of even is starting to hit harken back to some of the fluid mode stuff as well. Um, and so, yeah, those are uh, probably the, the two, the, the, this, this fluidity, um, the humility and, uh, and the, the process orientation, uh, of, of not nev- knowing we're never going to arrive, uh, are the elements of game B that are the most attractive to me and the ones that I'm you know, spending the most time kind of throwing out there, uh, as well. And then obviously the, 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 the role of spirituality and the, the whole, whole, whole game as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, so just, just my, my thoughts for, for what's, uh, most alive for me in the, the game B space. Alex, I'm curious, um, if you, if you were to answer that question, like how, how do you interpret game B and, you know, how do you think about it in your own life? Uh, what would you say? So the way that I, I tend to think about it is that, uh, game B is an attempt to, uh, start from a bottom up approach at making sense of the world. And mm-hmm. to primarily do do that, not necessarily by following a specific uh, procedure or a- algorithm, uh, but to sort of delimit the. Uh, see, I, I think I think my interpretation of game B at the moment is a little bit more constrained. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's it involves delimiting the uh, the type of conversations that we want to have taking place. Um, mm-hmm. So. Going back to how we started this podcast, getting people into uh, a safe space where they're comfortable enough to uh, talk about uh, different ideas, where they're secure enough in themselves, where they're not getting triggered, or if they are, where we're taking the time to really deconstruct where that might be coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this all involves actually excluding certain types of uh, behavior and certain types of uh, in- <clears throat> interactions uh, that actually mm-hmm. are taking place in a lot of other uh, social systems and a lot of other uh, forms of sense making. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it it's it's complicated for me because I actually do see it as as being uh, slightly slightly restrictive in that you can't actually have bad faith actors, and it does also require mm-hmm. a certain level of good faith commitment on the participants of any uh, dialogue to really put in the work and it, and it is really mm-hmm. personal individualized work that you don't get rewarded for at least immediately by the outside world, right, right. uh, to, to try to, uh, give rise to these really unique moments. I, I really see it as an attempt at transcendence. Uh, mm-hmm. and I do believe that transcendence is possible. That's uh, part of what we're trying to do here. Obviously we're, we're putting out, uh, both, yourselves and I 
are are trying to put these memes further out into the world through various broadcast mediums and uh, writing and so forth. And I, I think that that's the best way to do it. But uh, it, it 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 does it is going to require removing uh, certain types of uh, of individuals or at least certain individuals that are trying to do certain things. Um, and like you said, you, you're never going to be able to remove the self-interested component. We're all here because we have mm. a self-interest in what we're doing. Uh, right. But it's this commitment to we're, we're trying to be in a collaborative framework. We're trying to, as best as we can, avoid the, uh, the pitfalls of, uh, of rivalrous dynamics. And, and that's right. where, I, where I really see Game B sitting in terms of principles. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, so there's, there's this kind of perennial debate uh, about, you know, do, do you fight against, uh, you know, the system, the old system that, that, that you don't like, uh, in, in this case, game A, or do you find the others, so to speak, that, you know, re recognize, you know, from all different walks of life, by the way, you know, um, and, and from all, you know, from many different directions, recognize that, you know, that, the, that we need, you know, this is another term from game B, civilizational operating system. Right. Right. But, but how do we get there? Um, and as you said before, it, you know, it can't be this kind of top down, you know, you know, mastermind on, on, you know, in their lab comes up with this kind of perfect solution and then implements it. Like that's not going to work. Like you have to work, you know, it has to be an evolutionary process. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, when you're working with complex systems, you know, it, it, you can't optimize or control a system, you know, you can only, you know, you can, you can, you can start to kind of intervene in the system, you know, start to tinker, you know, but you need kind of constant feedback, you know, uh, uh, to continually be able to adapt, you know, uh, your approach, you know, the, the policies are implemented, um, and I might've gotten off track of my original point, but you know, <laughs> in terms of like finding the others yeah. and starting to come off alternative system, right. So another, another term that we use is to exact, uh, to, to, you know, to exact, uh, game A into game B, which, which, you know, is kind of a parasitic idea in a way, but it's, it's basically, you know, it comes from like evolutionary biology where, you know, we evolved certain, you know, say limbs that were for a certain purpose, but then, you know, um, according to, you know, our need to adapt, they, they started to be used for other purposes. Right. And yep. so, you know, things like, you know, a lot of the structures in game a, you know, uh, you know, capital and, and physical infrastructure, you know, we're not, we're not going off and creating a, you know, a completely isolated commune. Like we're still, many of us are still operating game a, but we're starting to direct some of those resources into this kind of new process, um, you, you know, this new process of dialogue and, and creating new, you know, new economies, you know, potentially new currencies, you know, there's a rise of peer to peer technology, um, and, you know, creating something that is better and, you know, people won't be, you know, this will be a small group of people, but, you know, if you create something better, you know, eventually more and more people are going to be attracted to it because they're going to it's value in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, as, as a political theory, uh, student, and again, this is a political theory podcast. Uh, one of the things that I'm 
trying to be cognizant of is these questions of, okay, what is it that I owe to the society that created me? You know, we're all inherently yeah. political beings. And what is it that I owe to my neighbors and so forth? And uh, I think the the praxis of Game B in terms of your actual life is something like the localism that you were talking about earlier, Jason, uh, mm-hmm. where it's 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 recognizing that you are actually part of a community and then making a conscious effort to engage with that community as it is in the moment uh, mm-hmm. and give yourself in a way to to your neighbors and, and really to pay attention to the local environment. That's something that I've really come mm-hmm. down on in the last yeah. few years where I've stepped away from the focus on, you know, maybe national or global politics and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. really just decided, okay, well, what is it that I could do that would make me, you know, better be able to live with myself uh, as, with the people that are actually around me as a, as a, as a proximal uh, and, and necessarily limited being in the universe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jared, do you, you want to? Yeah, I guess, I, you know, one one kind of uh, additive element here that, that uh, I, I couldn't uh, help but think of is that we also, um, a lot of the dynamics of small-knit communities and group collaboration uh, that largely lend themselves to Dunbar level, uh, 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 scales and interactions and things like that. Uh, I think we're also starting, starting to get a grasp on how some of these dynamics play out in a online environment. Right. So, um, so, you know, at the same, I'm in this space where, you know, uh, before game B and, 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 uh, a lot of the kind of localism stuff was was that hot. You know, I built a, I have a, a career and and live in an, a city and not very connected to my neighbors and things like that. Um, but I do find myself uh, seeking out and engaging in in very similar ways to that localism, but on an online uh, environment. Um, so it, it's it's a weird place to start, but it is uh, you know a kind of technological affordance uh, that we can instantiate these not only in meat space but also elsewhere uh not to say that it's the only you know that that we should over index on that i think meat space is is uh ultimately where we need to be that that should be ground zero um but but we can start right here uh uh, on our on our computers i suppose (laughs) yeah and they can can feed into each other right so it's 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 been interesting you know i've i've been you know like i i went for a while kind of like jared where i was not you know not that connected you know, with my community and, you know, in in many ways I'm still not, you know, I'm still in kind of a transitional mode. Um, you know, I was, and I was doing a lot of stuff online through Twitter, you know, networking. It's been interesting, like, um, and I'm still doing that. I think that's, you know, so you're, you know, there's, there's both digital, you know, there's different kinds of localities, right? There's, there's a physical localities and there's also, you know, the digital localities. And I think they're both important. Um, but they compete into each other in the sense that like lately I've been like, you know, connecting with people, people reaching out to me saying, Hey, I live nearby, right? Like, Oh, I live, you know, a couple hours mm-hmm. away or I live 30 minutes away. Um, you know, and I've, I've started to, to meet people that I've connected with online in this area where we have this, these kind of similar, you know, common, common vision for, you know, where we, where we want society to go. Um, and that, that probably wouldn't have been possible or, or it would have been, it would have been harder without, 
without kind of this online networks, right? Uh, and yeah. and while I'm meeting these people, we're also, you know, and we're sharing ideas and we're talking about, you know, potentially future plans to collaborate, you know, in, in, in real life. And, you know, and, and that's also getting fed back into the digital network, right? So I think it, you know, again, this is like the, the point where it's different than the past. You know, we're not isolated tribes anymore um, where we are connected and, and we should also use that to our advantage. Yeah, I... I I definitely have had the experience of whenever you, you're seeing the online world uh, or specifically interactions with specific consciousnesses in the online world folding back into the real world, that's mm. often where a lot of these really magical moments happen. Uh, and part of yeah. me launching this podcast was really an attempt to bring those two worlds back, uh, make them more closely knitted or more closely aligned. Uh, and that I wasn't really... I had built this community of uh, mutual followers and so forth, this sort of intellectual community on Twitter that I interact with. And mm-hmm. obviously, uh, the spaces that we uh, interact with uh, seem to be overlapping quite a bit, which is a, a large basis for why we can have this conversation. Uh, yeah. But uh, really, just I'm trying to create more and more of those moments. Um, one, mm-hmm. one last question, because uh, I know I've taken up a, a good amount of your guys' time here, and it is getting a little late, uh, is... Uh, in the interest of politics, do you guys think that uh, these principles, these concepts that we've talked about so far are are broadly scalable? Uh, I know we've been talking about this principle of localism, but um, do you think that we're we're working on a framework right now that could actually scale up to a society-wide level? Or do you think it'll be more like uh, uh, a downstream effect of a smaller group of individuals having these conversations and then that sort of dispersing throughout the the general population what's your take on that hmm maybe maybe both and there i'm gonna both end <laughs> there. um so <laughs> had to come up once at least yeah yeah, yeah it's you know f- f- we gotta we gotta do some promotion here um sure so <laughs> I, I you know i saw um this i don't know if you're familiar with this guy joe brewer i'm not um, actually but he, he talks he talks about a lot about like bioregional regeneration and he's kind of a polymath he you know, he's, he's like extremely well-read in kind of cultural evolutionary theory and evolutionary theory and cognitive science and ecology. You know, he's kind of like this polymath generalist guy. Um, and he's he's been going around giving these workshops on, on kind of like, you know, um, uh, earth regeneration workshops. And, and he recently started this, this this online kind of platform, social media platform, they call it Earth Regenerators, which I recommend everybody check out. Um, and I, I'm, a, I'm a part of it. And one of his ideas is that, you know, he, he wants to help cultivate a global network of, of people who, you know, uh, who are each, you know, uh, involved in, you know, this, this notion of it's not just like local in terms of like, like your community, but it's like a bioregional thinking in terms of you know, uh, you know, for example, watersheds, right. Or, mm-hmm. you know, if it has a, a, a deep cultural history, like I'm, I'm in Southern, you know, I'm in, you know, West North Carolina, which is, you know, Southern Appalachia. And, and, and this has a rich, you know, a long, rich history that I'm, I'm, I'm just starting to learn about and, you know, and I'm really excited. I'm really excited to be here. Um, and thinking in terms of like that, that regional focus and, and finding the others in this area, but also connecting with people through this network from, you know, people who are doing the same, same thing all over the world, right? And in terms of scaling up, you know, 
it's you know I, I think it's it's one of the things where it's going to be a slow start uh, and then it's going to speed up and it's going to speed up because you know the uh, uh, you know um, these kind of uh, another game B idea from, from Daniel Schmachtenberger forcing functions are going to start are going to start you know feeling more real for people. I mean once these climate change tipping points start start hitting and you start getting you know floods and droughts and you know oceans rising um and you know crops failing and you know massive displacement of humans migration like you know uh, i don't economic know if here, but she's gonna start hitting the fan the economics you know so a lot of people talk about that that we are you know you know there is a high possibility that we are going to be seeing this kind of ecological and, and social system collapse of, of the old world order and so it's like and so right now really our goal is to is to just slowly but surely kind of build these networks, and you know, on these solid foundations in our in our regions, and connecting with people. And you know, once these forcing functions start becoming more real, then you know, people are going to wake up and, and start looking for answers. And hopefully, you know, um, you know, we have the infrastructure and, and kind of this new game B operating system. You know that that you know it, it'll provide kind of. A framework for people to to transition, right? Yeah. Um, and so I and so yeah, I think scaling up, um, you know, right now it's like very thin, but it, it's very broad broadly distributed, mm-hmm. uh, and the scaling up will happen when people realize that it needs to happen. Uh, Jared, any thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah, the, I mean, this one, uh, yeah, Jason spent a lot more time thinking about uh, some of these things. I, I don't know if I. Um, I don't know if I have a, t- a ton to add uh, there. Uh, I just see, you know, that there's. Uh, so, so I will say one thing. I spent a long, a lot of time in the the nonprofit space for a while, uh, and was especially co- attached to the effective altruist scene, uh-huh. and um, <clears throat> and I think that uh, recently I've started to. Uh, move so so i had very utilitarian uh, perspectives or kind of intuitions uh, obviously coming from that that effective altruist scene uh, which is very highly rationalist um and pro- prioritizing well-being uh as as your kind of measure and and uh, feedback loop on a regular basis uh is is is, is a a logical move here but i'm starting to realize that i think um prioritizing the uh, human development. So looking at how to create these, these systems and, and game B, or as, as Jim Rutt would say, these proto B spaces are also really conducive to, uh, people making their way through these developmental cycles in the most fluid and, and, and uh, uh, safe way possible. Um, I know Zach Stein has done a lot of stuff on education too. So he might be fun to check out if anybody's not aware of him. Um, I think this is another element that has to be there. So it's like this, this education, um, and building uh, norms and and uh, and, and um, systems uh, to to enrich these these um, proto bees as they start to spring up uh, and and make sure that everybody is is you know working through and up the the, the developmental phases is is probably a, a more long term goal. But mm-hmm. I think it actually leads to to more sustained 
uh, uh, impact on well-being rather than first prioritizing well-being. It's, you know, I, I kind of, it's a cart before a horse type thing. Um, so, I mean, just something that's been on the, I don't think I've said it out loud yet, but it's something I've been thinking about. Um, and, uh, I think it's, it's a key element there. So I, I want to continue to keep a focus on it. Um, and I, I think it'll largely determine the, the, the viability of these, these, uh, these proto bees as they start to sprout up. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for the two of you for coming on. Uh, you can find Jason Snyder at Cognizer on Twitter or Jared Janes at Jared Janes. They are also are, as I said, the hosts of the uh, Both And podcast. Uh, Jason, Jared, it's been a pleasure sharing liminal space with you tonight. <laughs> yeah, Indeed. This, is, this, has been, this has been delightful, Alex. I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. I look forward to interacting in the future. Yeah, you as well. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye.